turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be uh, looking at three parables uh, in this chapter. Uh, we'll start at verse 31. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, as we continue our way through the gospel of Matthew and leading up to our time in communion this morning. Um, my children are all clearly in the 99th percentile for height. Um, but this was not the case for all of those on mine and Holly's side of the family. My mother was on like the 20th percentile for height. She was just barely 5'2", barely. And all of her clothing had a P next to the number on the tag for petite, okay? Every, every bit of it. So her stature was very petite, very, very short. She made up for this in personality, okay? So she was a force to be reckoned with. So everything that she lacked in stature, she made up for in personality, okay, in, in attitude. And I, of course, you know, when you're watching your parents as a child growing up, you see all kinds of opportunities where that manifests itself. But one in particular as an adult has always stood out to me and to Holly and our, and our family. So in 2010, a few months after she was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, um, you'll remember 2010 was like the end of a pretty awful recession in the United States. And so as a result, it was incredibly cheap to travel. And so um, in 2010, Holly and I and my brother, along with my mother and her sister, Gloria, went on a cruise uh, in the Mediterranean. And it was, you know, incredibly cheap to get over there and do this 10-day 10 10 day cruise with my mom as, a, you know, kind of a bucket trip for, for her in her recent diagnosis. <laughs> okay, but the problem is you got to fly over there, which is not awesome, you know, like it's just not, it's not, it's an eight or nine hour flight, You're like I don't want to sound spoiled, like I'm flying to Rome, it's totally fine, right? <laughs> but, but still, it's like there's this eight or nine hour flight out of Charlotte, and you know, she's, because of Lou Gehrig, she, we want her to be comfortable, you want her to have a great experience, and there's all this, there's a little bit of overbearing anxiety in my own heart and in my brother's heart about making sure everything goes perfect for my mother. And so she gets to pick the seat that she wants on the ticket, you know, whatever. We're going to do all those things. So we're on the, on the plane flying from Charlotte to, um, to I think, directly to Rome. And, um, and the guy behind her is about 6'6", and his all leg and so he's got his, he's seating in the chair and his legs and his knees are pushing. Like her chair's already upright enough. You know how airlines do anyway, right? I mean, it's always like, how, how much can we put them, you know, how can we tilt them forward in the chair? Would that be legal? Like they're already doing that. And this guy's legs are pressing in so firmly into the chair that my mother at 5'2", her, her legs barely touch the ground. But you know, at 5'2", she cannot move her chair back at all. And because it's, you know, you're flying at night, and it's just, so she's trying, she's trying, and she's trying, and you, if you're paying attention, which I was not at this point, but my wife was, so if you're paying attention, you can feel the tension building, right? The, that there's going to be a, a petite woman with some personality come alive, even though she may be literally on death's door five years away on her way but she is not going out without a fight like you can see that this is her trip and she, this is happening and finally she stands up in the aisle of the airplane turns and looks at turns and looks at this guy and says i'm all out of nice 
looks, Holly looks at me, you know, because <laughs> she's closer. And I get up. I said, Mom, 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 why don't you come and take my seat? And I take her back here, and she gets in my seat. And I get in this guy's seat, and I'm like, you know. <laughs> I think I medicated, though, right? Didn't I medicate and manage to fall asleep anyway? My, my brother gave me an Ambien. <laughs> I should not have said that out loud. Anyway. But that guy, I mean, he thought he could just put his knees into my mom's back and get away with it. He completely misjudged everything that she was capable of. I could have told him if he'd asked. Could have told him. Okay, we're going to look at three parables. There, there's a relevance there to that, that story. Jesus wants, to wants us to understand something very similar about the nature of his, his kingdom. It may look insignificant, but it's coming with a lot of power, okay? just like my mom. Um, We've all seen this through Matthew so far. Jesus is preaching, repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of God is near. And yet as it's unfolding through Matthew, it's becoming, what's becoming clear, what people are beginning to gather, is that whatever Jesus' kingdom was, it wasn't what they thought it would be. So Jesus was teaching parables at this point to help people understand something about the nature of of the kingdom of heaven. And let's start with the kingdom, the parable of uh, mustard seed in verse 31 and leaven in verse 33. Look at Matthew 13, 31. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. So let me explain to you what Jesus is doing immediately in this context. I've already hinted, basically affirmed the meaning of the interpretation, but in this context, and then let's talk about what this parable means for us on this side of the kingdom of God for us, us today. So in context... Jesus is, is using this parable to shift expectations about the nature of his kingdom. Okay? So one phrase that Holly picked up years ago and has, we have often used in our family is, is this phrase. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Expe I know, isn't that brutal? I, just, I, cuts, oh, I know. We love it and we hate it. We love it and we hate it. Um, expectations are premeditated resentments. And it was the Jewish expectation that the kingdom of God would come how? With force, right? With that it would be a political or military victory. Okay, that was the Jewish expectation. Why? Well, we just learned in Second Chronicles today in Sunday school. Their country was now gone. Their military and political entity was gone. And so the hope... The hope was that the Messiah would come and restore Israel as a political and military entity, a true nation. And Jesus has been saying, as many others had been doing from time to time, repent and believe for the kingdom of God was near. But Jesus' teaching and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' words, it's, something's not lining up. And so Jesus tells this parable to correct their expectations right? So Jesus, he's working to adjust their expectations. He's trying to say to his disciples, what in this parable, what he's saying, 
He's saying is what you see in me now is going, is, is going to lead to what you hope for and what the scripture promises about the kingdom, although they're misinterpreting what the scriptures are saying. We'll come to that later. He's saying to them the end, the end that everybody's hoping for is in the beginning with me now in seed form. Okay, That's, that's how they're, they're reading it. So he's recalibrating their expectations. The kingdom of God wasn't going to come with a big bang and the defeat of the Roman army and the establishment of a holy Jewish state. It's going to come, well, you know, almost insignificantly. Starting in a manger in Nazareth. And it's going to result in the Messiah's death. That's how it's all going to start, like a mustard seed. But then there's going to be a resurrection. And then there are going to be sightings of a risen Jesus. Then there's going to be an ascension. Then there's going to be Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes. Then there's going to be the spreading of the message through persecution and suffering. And if you just keep going for 2,000 years, we now see, do we not, what Jesus was talking about when he said, it's a seed that turns into a tree. It's a sourdough starter that fills up 50 pounds of flour. That's what Jesus was saying. So what this means for you and I today is, well, there are several things we could take away, but I want to just, I want to focus on a couple of things. The, the first one is this, is that you and I, we're on this side of the kingdom of God. We're, we're on this side of the kingdom, but, but there are seasons and there are moments where, where things look really insignificant. And we need not be put off by that. Okay. The kingdom of God is present and is active even if at times it appears to be weak or insignificant. Okay? Right now, we're in an already, I've said this before because it's all the way through Matthew, there's, we were in an already not yet state when it comes to Jesus. Already he has come. Already sin has been paid. Already he has defeated death. Already he is resurrected. Already he has ascended. Already he is at this throne. Not yet is he coming back to permanently establish a new heaven and a new earth for an actual physical rule in this universe. So it's already we've got some realities, but not yet do we have some realities. They're not yet come here to us. So in the meantime, in the meantime, whether we have moments of great victory or whether we have moments of where we're really struggling and have not much significance as the church, we don't need to look in those moments of insignificance and think, well, where is God? What's he doing? It's in those moments of insignificance where he's at work getting ready to do amazing things. Okay? When you're shopping for a book, whether that's online, which is 99.9% of the time, okay, even when it's digital, you will still judge a book by its cover. You will read that title. And Lord willing, you will also read, please do this, I say this as a publisher, please read the, the second line that explains the title, okay? That is not my phone, just, I don't know what that is, but it's something. Um, it's not this. All right, we'll figure it out later. Uh, <laughs> all right. It's, uh, who is it? Um, you will also read the byline that explains the title. But it's not just that. You won't just read the words. You know what else to do? 
intuitive. I don't know if you know you do this, but you're doing it. You are judging a book by its design. If the cover's any good, you might actually pick it up and read the title and the byline. And then, Lord willing, I mean, I know this is really unusual, but you might read the table of contents. Or you might even read the back and see what some famous person said that we hope you like and affirms that associates with you in some way or in this author, right? You make perceptions and judgments in split seconds based on image and title and design alone without any consideration for the content at all. If it doesn't look significant, you will judge it to be insignificant. What Jesus is saying is don't do that to me. Jews. And to us, he's saying, don't do that in those times, church. Right? Your natural inclination to judge based on initial impact is a false inclination. You need to consider just what God may be up to in something that may initially look insignificant. Okay? So don't get down about small beginnings. Like, Church plants that meet in small barns with narrow driveways. Okay? The bathroom is, you're going to hold it because it's cold getting out there. It's a small beginning. Don't misjudge it. Okay? Don't misjudge it. Now look to verse 24. There's another parable about the kingdom of God that I want you to see. Verses 24 to 30. And then Jesus actually takes the time to explain this one in verses 36 to 43. So we're going to read it all. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where do these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up, the servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them. But collect the wheat in my barn. And then he, verse 36, please. And he left the crowds, went into the house. Remember how Jesus would do this. He would take his disciples in for explanation. But he would leave the parable hanging for clarity in the people. To do the thing in their heart to wrestle and clear. But for these people, for these disciples in this moment, the explanation was given because of God having chosen them to be Jesus' disciples in this moment. He said, they said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He said, okay. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom of God. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and harvesters are the angels. Therefore, just as weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will gather from His kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. So the previous parables 
about the mustard seed and the leaven. We're answering the question, how can Jesus be ushering in the kingdom of God if it looks so insignificant? Okay, that's what Jesus answered in that. Okay. This parable is answering a similar question, but different. Okay. It's about the kingdom. It's about the nature of the kingdom, but it's not about its insignificance. It's about, uh, I'm just going to read it from my notes, sorry. It's how can Jesus be ushering in the kingdom of God if evil is still present among it? Okay? Now, before I get into the interpretation, let, let me set the background for you just a little bit because it's super helpful in understanding both why Jesus told this parable and it's effective. Uh, and, and having the backstory makes it drive home. Okay? So I've, I've talked a little bit about how the vast majority of peoples of, of Jesus' day, especially those that lived in the villages that were well, or either close or outside of the city, we've talked about how poor everybody was, okay? Like they, everybody lived hand to mouth, okay? Most everybody that would have been following Jesus all over the sea, you know, all over Capernaum, around the sea, okay? Most of those people would have been quite poor. Um, they would have been slaves. They would have been free peasants, Okay? Um, and many of them would have worked for the handful of oligarchs, if you will, the wealthy landowners that owned all of this land out and around this, the cities. So wealthy landowners, like a feudal system of sorts, right? So you have wealthy landowners that, that have all this land, and these free peasants or these slaves would work the land for their survival. So it is not a surprise that Jesus chooses an agricultural metaphor in this moment. It's not a thoughtless choice. Jesus is trying to speak the language of the people. For them, they, they would have resonated with this, right? And the most basic staple of the Palestinian diet and the ancient diet in general was gluten. <laughs> All right? Give me some gluten. I'm gluten full. Now, that was the mantra of every Palestinian, okay? You can't go into a restaurant now without gluten-free options marked on the menu, okay? Or in some shape, form, or fashion, we have some lettuce. You know, like the, the, somebody, they will make you something. Not a concern in Jesus' day. It was absolutely critical for survival. And there was this poisonous weed called a darnel, a darnel. And your translation may call them wheat and tares, T-A-R-E-S. Here's the thing you need to know about darnel. It looked just like wheat. You couldn't tell the difference. Uh, not in the early stages. The only time you could tell the difference between the weed of a tear or darnel from the actual wheat, okay, is when the wheat had gotten tall enough to start bearing its ear, and the, the, tear, the tears won't produce that ear of wheat. There's no fruit on it. It'll, can you believe this metaphor? It looks just like it all the way to the top, and then it stops, and the wheat keeps growing and bearing fruit. Okay? Right. That's what's going on. So by the time you recognize the tear, you couldn't remove it yet because you might also pull up the wheat instead because it's so well grown. So what would you do? You would wait. This is what these free peasants would do. They would wait until the wheat was fully grown, and then they'd come through and they'd cut off the heads of the wheat that stuck out taller than the tares, and they would leave the tares so they could be cut down and later used to burn for fuel along with 
the leftovers of the, the, the not the fruit of the wheat. Jesus' listeners totally got this. He was speaking their language about his kingdom, addressing their question. If your kingdom is the kingdom of God, why is there still evil in its midst? And Jesus' answer is, the presence of evil doesn't necessarily force you to conclude that my kingdom is not the real kingdom. It's just in your midst. It's in your midst. There is alongside the kingdom of God an illegitimate power of God's enemy named the devil, he says. Right? Isn't it interesting that within the parables that emphasize the inevitable victory of the kingdom of God, Jesus consistently acknowledged the presence of unbelief, the presence of failure, the presence of opposition, some of which is rooted in us, and some of which is rooted in another entity he calls the devil, the enemy. The Bible, the Bible has a worldview <laughs> that accounts for and is not surprised by evil. God is not the only one at work. Evil happens that can only be identified as the work of an enemy. And so we can and we should be broken when it happens. But Jesus says, don't be surprised. My kingdom is in the midst of that. There's this... There's this battle taking place. And its presence of evil does not mean that this kingdom is not effective. It's effective. It's in its midst. So that's, I want you to take that away. Jesus is aware of that. The presence of his kingdom does not necessarily mean the absence of evil. It means it's in the, in the presence of it. And it's growing. And whoa, isn't it interesting that the worst kind of evil looks just like the fruit. But here's the the other really significant takeaway for me. This is an agricultural metaphor on purpose, not just because it, it speaks well to the audience, but also because it speaks well to the substance of the kingdom. Okay. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of rhythms and patience. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of of patience. I uh, settled on tennis as my sport when I was a child. And I traveled all over the Mississippi Delta, the state of Mississippi, to play tennis from the age of 10 to the age of 18. I mean, everywhere, okay? I have taken on more two-lane highway miles than just about anybody in this room, I assure you, because you had to drive them to get anywhere in Mississippi. And there was a guy that I played several times named David. I called him Little David because he was little and his name was David. (laughs) Also, I hated him because he beat me all the time, even though he was Little David, okay? Little David was, I I hope he doesn't, like, find me on the internet, okay? (laughs) He was a, when my mom called him the human backboard, which was a very nice way of saying Little David, okay? He beat nearly everybody, not with better strokes, but with constant strokes until you missed. He was a wall, and he won with patience. He was not intense. That was not David, right? And he wasn't passive. Oh, is it over there? Oh, I'm just going to let it go. He wasn't passive either. He was patient. He played the long game. And the games were long, which is another way to wear you out. 
He was patient, and he won. It is the nature of the kingdom of God to play the long game. Okay? The kingdom of God is going to outlast everything. It's playing the long game. On the, and, and, and we are a part of that nature. Okay, we're wrapped up in it. We're citizens in the kingdom, and a chief value of the kingdom is long game. So we're not to be zealots that want to usher in the kingdom through force. Hear me? And we're not passive or indifferent as if God isn't just or demand glory from his creation. We're, we're always living until Jesus comes back. We are always living with this already, not yet mentality. And that keeps us somewhere in between zealotry and indifference. We're playing the long game. Okay? And you can apply that mentality to virtually every area of your life. If you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you've got to play the long game with your marriage you got to play the long game with your kids. you got to play the long game with your parents, kiddos. Trust me, play the long game. Okay? you got to play the long game with your country's leadership. you got to play the long game with your church. Play the long game with your leaders at work. Play the long game with your friends on social media. Friends on social media, okay? Play the long game with yourself. Don't let the presence of evil and all of these things or these relationships lead you to zealotry where you're going to fix everything because you're so zealous. Or just walk away because they're not going to do it by anymore. No. Just keep the pressure on. Keep walking. Play the long game. Because the kingdom of God is playing the long game and it's going to win. Father, help us play the long game. Wheat's going to grow. It's going to bear fruit. There'll be tares all around. But the kingdom of God is playing the long game. So give us... Give us the fortitude, give us the endurance, give us the perseverance, give us the faith to play the long game as your citizens in your kingdom. Resisting zealotry and indifference, resisting zealotry and apathy, and instead pressing in for the long haul. Bringing gospel truth to bear, step by step, relationship by relationship, experience after experience, playing the long game, holding hope, believing that one day you will return and finish the game. Finish the game. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.